Kia ora, g'day and welcome to the history of Aotearoa New Zealand. Episode 49, Dank Weeds. This podcast is supported by our amazing patrons. If you want to support Hans, go to patreon.com slash history Aotearoa. Last time, we talked more about how Māori gardens were actually made and how they were developed along with the fertiliser they used and how the process of planting worked. This time, we're going to continue on the timeline of growing food, from the putting it in the ground stage, to the trying to make sure it doesn't die while growing stage, through to the taking it out of the ground to eat stage. So, let's start with what to do as the crops were growing. Māori didn't water their plants according to best, so the primary form of care for the fields was weeding. Before we can get into how this worked, why it was important, and all things related to weeding, we really should define what a weed is. I realise this may seem a bit silly. It was to me when I first read it. A weed is a weed. It has a universal meaning. Well, yes and no. Weed, in the European context, means any plant that is considered undesirable by humans in the context it grows. The most obvious form of this being those random leafy plants you see in your garden or crop fields, but can also encompass things like dandelions in your lawn, or even raspberries in your rose garden. So even there, you already have a bit of a messy definition. Raspberries, on their own, are generally considered quite good, given that they provide berries that are pretty tasty. However, they are also fast-growing and propagate widely via runners underground that then pop up a little distance away. Something you don't really want if you're trying to keep a nice rose garden. So, depending on where they are and what the owner intends to use the land for, they can be either a crop or a weed. The term is also usually used to refer to small, fast-growing plants that propagate quickly. But there are plants that many would deem weeds that don't fit this description. Or that do fit this, but aren't considered weeds, again, like raspberries. What I'm trying to get across is that the term weed is context-specific, rather than botanical in its nature. Kind of like how the word vegetable is a culinary term. In general, European languages have words for weeds that are often made up of their word for plant prefixed by a negative qualifier. So, for Europe, a weed is referred to as a quote-unquote bad plant. On the other side, Polynesians seem to have had a similar concept of a weed with their words indicating a negative connotation. Except, that isn't quite the case. The article that I used as the main reference for this specifically points out the Tahitian creation story, the story of the principal ancestor of Rapa Nui, Easter Island, and a Tongan story of Maui. The article points out that you encounter a bit of a problem when you start looking at most Polynesian oral stories. Not just for finding out if they had the same European concept of a weed, but trying to basically figure out anything. The devil is in the translation, Because all of these stories were researched by European scholars to learn more about the cultures they had just encountered. However, these were guys back in England who didn't know how to read any Polynesian languages, so they needed to read ones that had been translated into their native tongue. 
the issue with that is you can get a lot of bias or just plain misunderstanding from the translator. In the case of these three stories, it seems that the Europeans who were translating them misunderstood Polynesian views because they were coming at the translation from a European headspace. In particular, the idea that certain plants were seen as bad. For example, in the Tahitian creation story, a sentence translates to, quote, weeds grew and increased, end quote. But it's possible that the word that was translated into weeds is a more generic term for leaves or foliage. So, no negative connotation there. We see a similar pattern in the Rapa Nui story, with a word that was translated into weeds may just mean young shoots. The Tongan story describes the earth being weeded, as in the act of removing weeds. In this case, it may just be a misunderstanding of the difference between removing bad plants from already cultivated land and clearing land of bush for cultivation. There is, of course, a bit of leeway here, as this is the kinda immaterial part of a culture that is hard to pin down and define. So, don't take this as gospel. For Māori specifically, well, the sources don't seem to really agree. Cook recorded when he saw Māori gardens, quote, the ground is completely cleared of weeds, end quote. This would indicate that weeding was indeed done. But another source also claims that weeding wasn't really a thing before European arrival, due to the way cultivated crops grew, resulting in weeds being naturally excluded. Other sources claim that the first weeding was quite tapu, with workers gathering around the same hangi pit that was used to cook the kumara during planting. A stone was taken from the pit and was passed right to left around the circle before being put back in. The weeding then commenced, and after the day's work, the ceremony was performed again. During the whole day's work, and even the planting and harvesting, the workers wouldn't communicate with those back home in the kaina due to the tapu. All of this would indicate that weeding was definitely done, and actually pretty important. However, it is likely that Māori didn't have that concept of a weed as a bad plant. Remember, Tahiti in that area is potentially where the Great Migration came from, and as we have just discussed, they didn't have that view. So, my very unprofessional take is that there is definitely something getting lost in translation here. Europeans not understanding that Māori may not have the same worldview as them seems like it has coloured the way their observations have been made, and as such, subsequent research has been influenced by this. I'm not saying that Māori definitely did or did not perform weeding, but the waters do seem to be a lot more muddy than it may initially appear. It is also possible that the Māori style of horticulture just didn't require weeding, but Due to how Europeans grew food, it seems to have resulted in this change in thought in Māori, seeing certain plants as bad. This would again stir the historical record a bit, especially for anyone like Best asking questions in the early 20th century. With all of that said, when I use the term weed in this episode, I am using the European context of any plant that is considered undesirable by humans in the context it grows. Primarily, in our case, that context is horticulture. Weeds native to New Zealand weren't the only ones that were found here, though. 
Māori brought over their own seeds, either intentionally or accidentally, and over time, some of these plants became naturalised, basically meaning that they were present in the wild and reproduce, thus adapting to the different conditions. The observations made by Cook and his botanist Banks were particularly helpful in figuring out what plants were native or naturalised from the samples they took. However, Māori weren't the only ones who brought their own plants. Europeans brought a whole range of new flora to Aotearoa. Again, some intentionally, and some not so much. We'll talk more about how horticulture in general changed after European arrival in another episode, but for now, I just want to focus on how this occurred in regards to weeds. One of the first European recorded instances of weeding in New Zealand was made by missionary Samuel Marsden in 1815. He saw the blind wife of a chief walking along a garden and pulling up weeds. She would then step on them to make sure she knew where they were and throw quote-unquote mould on them, supposedly to kill the weeds and stop the growth. At this point, it is likely that the weeds she was pulling up were introduced from Europe, rather than anything already in New Zealand before Cook. The kind of plants that she may have been pulling up is something that may surprise you. Things like cabbages, radish, turnip, spinach, celery, carrots, and parsnip. These had all returned to their more naturalised state in the New Zealand bush, once they, I guess you would say, escaped? This meant that they didn't have those pesky humans trying to breed various traits into their lineage, like increased size or more flavour. So they were generally a lot smaller, and not really the kind of thing you would expect to see on the supermarket shelf today. Leeks were also observed wild and free, roaming the fields of Northland by Darwin. Yes, that Darwin. The father of natural selection also saw large-leafed dock, a weed that was common in Europe, and said would, quote, forever remain a proof of the rascality of an Englishman who sold the seeds for those of the tobacco plant, end quote. If you're picking up what he's putting down there, that gives a little hint to what we will talk about when we address European plants as a whole. By the 1840s, weeds and degenerated vegetables that the average European would recognise were widespread throughout Aotearoa, with the former being seen by Māori as a threat to the productivity of their gardens. Being in a new land that wasn't used to having them, just like introduced animals, these alien plants grabbed any available space they could, being spread by wind, birds, along with other animals, and of course, people. All of this adding to the work Māori needed to do to ensure they kept their fields clear, so they could, you know, feed themselves. This kind of fed into this idea that cropped up in 1844, that European weeds could, quote, exterminate and supersede the original possessors of the soil, end quote. It wasn't long before this became a widely held view by Pākehā, who had recently been granted sovereignty over the country and independence under the Treaty of Waitangi. I realise my use of the word sovereignty here is problematic, and some of you may be yelling at your phones, but what I'm trying to get across is the attitude of the people at the time, rather than what actually happened. Because what we see is that this attitude of European weeds being superior as to exterminate and supersede the original possessors of the soil is extended to trees, birds, and of course, 
Māori themselves. Add in a dash of Darwin's theory of survival of the fittest, and you can see how this might have gotten a bit out of control. Supposedly, New Zealand plants were, quote, powerless when it came to competition with the European plants, which by natural selection have become the very elite of the weed world, end quote. With the implication being that by extension, this applied to Māori-European relations as well. In short, Europeans were using weeds as a tool to justify colonisation, suppression, and in some cases, extermination of Māori and their culture. A theme that has and will continue to come up again and again in our story. In saying that though, it would be unfair to tar all Europeans with the same brush, because some did see the spreading of European weeds for what it was. Foreign plants spreading in a land that wasn't used to them and had no way to slow their growth. While Māori were pretty annoyed about the spread of things like dock plants, on the flip side, European farmers were none too happy about the spread of native species, such as bracken and manuka, which may have actually been growing more aggressively than European crops. Bracken, which is a large fern, was considered one of the worst culprits, along with tohinu, a small shrub sometimes called cottonwood. In fact, tohinu gave farmers such a hard time that it would be added as a third schedule weed of the Noxious Weeds Act of 1908, the first native plant to do so. What this meant in practice is that any local authority could declare it noxious, that is to say harmful which would allow them to take steps to eradicating it, and punish those for spreading it, along with any other steps they deemed necessary. To give you an idea of where Tohinu sat in regards to other plants, some third schedule plants you may recognise from this act are gorse, wild turnips, fennel, and hemlock. The reason I know this is because I read the act itself, which was somewhat of an eye-opener for me, because I actually really enjoyed reading it. For instance, one of the interesting things I saw was that blackberries were part of the second schedule, deemed national noxious weeds. Basically, these were considered weeds across the country, and you could remove them with impunity and face fines for spreading them, or even just not removing them when you found them. In the case of bracken and manuka, they weren't put into the Noxious Weeds Act, However, they were excluded from the Native Plants Protection Act of 1934, basically placing them in this weird limbo of they aren't protected, but you aren't legally obligated to remove them either. Part of the reason I'm making such a fuss about this is that the Wildlife Act of 1953, the act that currently dictates what animal species are protected and which aren't, operates on a similar premise. And... I've had occasion to read this act in my day job, as I have sometimes had to work within its bounds. Also, because this is, I guess, what Hans is gonna be like when Parliament becomes a thing. So, get hyped, question mark? Weeds weren't the only thing Māori needed to combat, though. As we mentioned a couple of episodes ago, different types of fences needed to be erected to keep out European pigs. But before that, Māori had their own local pest that they had to contend with. Remember the āwhito? The little caterpillar that they used to make ink for tāmoko. Well, apparently it had quite the appetite for kumara, 
and a lot of effort was put into getting rid of them. However, I would say that these caterpillars wouldn't be used to make ink, as they would have been missing that key ingredient of the fungus that infected them. Best also says that along with human efforts to get rid of Afeto, tame seagulls would get amongst it as well. I don't know how true this is, but it sounds pretty cool. The other animal that you might think Māori had an issue with was the kiori, or Pacific rat, brought over during the Great Migration. But apparently, they were pretty chill. It wasn't until the huge Norway rat was brought over that rats really became a problem for crops. One of the ways Māori got rid of rats and other pests was to burn kawakawa leaves or kauri gum in the fields. I'm not entirely sure how this worked though, I would assume there's some sort of compound in them that animals weren't super keen on. Once you've spent all that time caring for your crops, at some point you should spot Farnui on the horizon, also known as the star Vega. This was the signal that the hohakinga, or the hohake, should begin, the harvest. Like the planting, the harvest was a tapu event, and when it was underway, similar ceremonies and restrictions would be observed. The first few tubers to be brought up would be offered to the gods, or matariki, with a few being cooked and eaten by the tohunga or other relevant ranking person. Once underway, the workers would fast, so if the job wasn't done by early afternoon, they would continue the next day, presumably to stop anyone from collapsing from a combination of hard work and hunger. The kumara would then be dried for a bit to remove any major moisture, and then sorted based on size and to check if it had any bruises. This was extremely important, as any kumara that had bruises wouldn't keep in the storage pits. Instead, they would rot and potentially ruin the crop as a whole. So, any that were bruised were set aside for immediate use. The harvest was then transported to the storage pits in large baskets, again being careful not to bruise them. The pit was filled from back to front as a matter of tapu, something that may have arisen because that's really the most efficient way of doing it if you have lots of people going in and out all the time. The kumara would be stacked carefully for storage before the pit was shut until needed later. As with planting, women were allowed to do certain tasks but not others, and they certainly weren't allowed to work if they were menstruating. In preparation for storage, sometimes the kumara would be dried further. What this would involve is the surface of the tuber being scraped with a shell or a piece of wood, possibly to just remove the dirt rather than the skin. They were then sun-dried on a platform before being put into a hangi, stacking them in layers with leaves between each layer. A stick would be placed into the hangi right down to the bottom layer, where the stones were, and the whole thing would be covered in dirt. Water was then poured onto the stick to get the hangi going. Best doesn't mention this, but I presume the stick was spun around a bit to make a hole so that the water could get right down to the hot rocks to create steam. However, that is just my speculation. The hangi would be left to steam for the next 12 to 16 hours, until opened up the next day, revealing the now soft kumara. The tubers would be promptly sun-dried again to harden them and make them keep better, sometimes with a fire to speed up the process. When eaten later, kumara dried in this fashion might be put over the fire to soften them again, 
or crumbled up and mixed with water to make a porridge-like food. Once the tubers were in storage, a few were likely taken out by rot due to dampness or low temperatures. Those that survived were replanted, meaning that Māori were unconsciously selecting for rapid maturing. Since only matured tubers were stored and had the ability to last the whole six months of storage. A similar situation likely occurred with yams as well. Next time, we will discuss some of the major cultivated plants in more depth, such as kumara, yams, gourds and taro. We'll also talk a bit about how Māori named various plants when they got here based on what they already knew from their previous home in East Polynesia. If you want to send me feedback, ask a question, suggest a topic, or just have a chinwag, you can find my email and social media on historyaotearoa.com. Aotearoa spelt A-O-T-E-A-R-O-A. This podcast is a one-man band. If you enjoy listening to me talk history, you can support us through Patreon, buy merch, or give us a review. It means a lot, and helps spread the story of Aotearoa New Zealand. As always, hari tu watu, hoki tu mai. See you next time. <laughs>